Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersectionality. Or not. Or not. So far, <laughs> we've only had one that we did not. So yeah, we're batting pretty pretty good averages. Yeah. Which you just told me that uh, baseball has batting averages. What did oh, you say? Yeah, I did. So uh, baseball is my favorite sport because it is... So, so Okay, so the batting baseball. average Nobody thing. gives a shit about baseball. Let's uh, talk about me. <laughs> do you notice any, you. Do you notice anything different about what I'm wearing? Um, you look great, but that's thank all you so I've much for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! The you world is <laughs> the world is seriously against us. <laughs> At least me. You're having a great day. <laughs> no, I mean my day is. I mean it's not ungreat. Um, <laughs> What I was going to say I'm no longer going to refer to things as bad. They're just ungreat. <laughs> ungreat. It's like a very unbirthday. <laughs> so this is the first um, recording that I'm doing without wearing my sweatpants. Oh, the mm-hmm. gray ones? The You're gray. right. <laughs> I have consistently worn the same sweatpants. Although, just so we're clear, I have washed them. Um, I was about to say, are at these least your once. lucky sweatpants? <laughs> no, no, no. I, they're they're very comfortable. But I, I have literally worn them every time we've recorded. Well, I feel like we've leveled up then. Mm-hmm. Um, because have you noticed anything about what I'm wearing today? Well, you have your vagina monologue shirt. I do. just puffed up your chest My so little... I could read in case I hadn't noticed before. <laughs> My little vagina monologue's crop top. Yeah. That... Crop top. Drop top. <laughs> um, we got weird at you. Uh, oh, uh, Design Archive. Yeah. Oh, that's a cute secondhand I love Design Archive store. Yeah. Sponsored um, by Design Archive. <laughs> but uh, today is the first day I have not worn blue jeans since we oh. have been recording. It's because you want, you think the audience can hear the superiority of your jeans to my sweatpants. I was also raised by a man who to this day I have never seen not wearing khakis and a button-up shirt. Oh, wow. Yeah. Occasionally he will wear a polo that has like just the four buttons. Oh. But I have literally never seen this man in a t-shirt and jeans or shorts Mm, mm -hmm. there's a very awkward picture of him wearing swim trunks and (laughs) it's the only picture i've ever seen of my dad uh yeah not wearing khakis yeah the pool photos my mom stepped on a glass a piece of glass at the pool Hmm. in 1990s and um spent like the next five years like trying to dig it out of her foot just like a side note hi mom (laughs) (laughs) um anyway parents are going to be so proud of us so um what are we talking about today so allison Mm -hmm. have you ever heard uh the argument of nature versus nurture i have okay so you're familiar yeah just with kind of the basics so you know what you're what you're exposed to versus your biological yeah exactly the big question is is it who you are or how you were raised Mm -hmm. like why are you the way you are why and the answer is both it's both who you are intrinsically and how you were raised Mm -hmm. recent studies suggest that both of these things can now be passed on to your children and grandchildren both of them both both who you are currently and how you were raised have impacted your genes um and this is epigenetics 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 that's a good Um, scrabble word by the way (laughs) it's like three thousand points (laughs) pig is in the middle of it which is what i would go for if I were actually playing Scrabble. Uh-huh. I'm so bad at Scrabble. Yeah, me too. Scrabble I could sucks. have 
all Ray of the loves things. Scrabble. I know. I've had he to does. convert him to dominoes because I'm like, please <laughs> do not make me play another game of Scrabble. At the intersection of psychology and gene science, which mm-hmm. is what I wrote because I couldn't remember the word genetics, genetics. <laughs> even though the very next word is is epigenetics. <laughs> so at the intersection of psychology and genetics is epigenetics. And this is the study of how the environment and other factors can change the way that our genes function. Mm-hmm. Close your eyes. Let's go back in time. Okay. To ninth grade biology. No. Why? Why? <laughs> what I did can- we learn in ninth grade biology? Well, my entire high school career, I carried a small purple pillow around because I had a fracture in my back <laughs> and the chairs were so uncomfortable. I had to like wedge a small pillow between and my lower back. was jealous. No, everyone was like, what the fuck is wrong with her? <laughs> Yeah, I would have been your friend. Thank you. You're welcome. You. Um, so the most notable thing about my ninth grade year and my ninth grade uh, science class was they still had the roll-in TVs on carts. Oh my God, the morning announcements. Well, we were not that cool. You didn't have morning announcements? We had the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh. That was it. But What more do you need? <laughs> nothing. This is America. <laughs> So, um, but they would roll in the cart, you know, a couple of times a year for movies. Mm-hmm. And my ninth grade science class, we watched Gattaca and we watched, um, oh gosh, what's it called? A day, The Day After Tomorrow, like the apocalyptic movie. Ah, The Day After Tomorrow, not 28 Days Later. No, correct. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, because the day after tomorrow talks about global warming and 28 Days Later is a zombie apocalypse movie. Oh, okay. So I can see your confusion. <laughs> yeah. That brain. makes much, Yeah. I obviously Because you listen. just kind of looked at me like I had three heads. Like, yeah, I'm like dissecting it in my Why would head. you be watching a zombie apocalypse movie? And yeah, because that would be Now, they are confusing. both apocalyptic films. Sure. Um, but one's about climate change and global warming mm-hmm. and not, in fact, about zombies. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. So um, what else do we do in science class? We learned that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the uh, cell. Mm-hmm. I remember drawing like animal cells versus plant cells. Mm-hmm. I remember doing the, the bean, like the beanstalk, like the, the genes in the square. The Punnett square. Punnett square. Thank you. Oh, I'm monks. so glad that Hashtag you are bringing... <laughs> Yeah. I'm so glad that you're bringing us to the Pundit Square. We're going to actually talk about Blood that in type. just a second. Yes. But we talked about DNA. Okay. The so double helix. The double helix, which is a step up from the single helix. Right. Which creates the DNA. Yes. Or where the is DNA. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is it? Do I claim to be an expert? I do. Yes. For this episode. This is PhD Carrie, I'm speaking. I am the expert in all things science. Mm-hmm. I like how your voice gets. <laughs> ASMR. A continuing theme. This is what happens when I Pod get my PhD. Without an odd. <laughs> without an odd. <laughs> How low can you go? (laughs) DNA basically lays the groundwork for the development of physical and psychological characteristics. We're not going to talk about this a ton, um, but if you were paying attention, or if you weren't in high school biology class, Mm -hmm. this should sound familiar to you. You should know kind of the basics. After listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to call your biology teacher. Or add them on Facebook, because you know they're... Because they're, they're like now 1,000% on Facebook. Yes. And you can go and earn a few retroactive brownie points by telling them that you remembered one of your lessons. Yeah. Moral of the story, moral of high school biology class, mm-hmm. what you mm-hmm. should have gotten from it, is that we've all got genes. 
We've all got G-E-N-E-S, not J-E-A-N. Right. Yeah. So back when you were a little zygote baking in the oven. Oh, little baby. <laughs> the universe pulled out its pundit square notes from high school biology mm-hmm. uh, to decide that you, Allison, will have blonde hair. Oh. Unlike your older sister who got the recession She's hair a ginger. <laughs> She's a ginger and got that recessive hair gene because sure neither did. of your parents are redheads, question mark? Mm, Which nope. Ch- no? Okay. Nope. This also determined yeah. how tall you were going to be. And uh, it kind of laid the groundwork for some of your personality stuff. It's why you're the sparkling, amazing human Just being so, that you are. I'm so sparkly. I mean, sparkly is how I'm described, for sure. <laughs> sparkly and approachable. I'm totally approachable. Fucking approachable. Which is my most approachable way to describe person. you. I'm so bitter about that. I will never <laughs> let that go. Amen. Forever and ever, amen. Allison is the most approachable person mm. I know. But almost immediately, as you're baking as a zygote, can your genes begin to change? And they change for a whole bunch of different reasons. Environmental factors, like if your mom has a good diet, or if your mom's stressed a lot, like mm. all of these things go in and... Like while the baby, like literally while during the baby's zygote. baking. Okay. Yeah. So this is like the pre... Uh, this is the, the gestation period. Gesta- gestational? Yeah. Dr. K- Dr. Carrion? <laughs> I did not claim you gave me this title, and I'm honored to have it. Yeah, uh, you're but, welcome. You know, by the power vested in me, right? When your little genes in your mom's little. womb begin to change, mm-hmm. they leave little markers, kind of like when we went to the moon and we mm-hmm. put a little flag on the moon, and we're like, "We are here now." Mm. Uh, we never went to the. moon. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I was like, the world what? is also flat. <laughs> we are no longer having this conversation. Let's, Let's divert. Um, okay, we went to the moon and stuck the flag in. Yep, and that's as basically... As white people love to do. Right. And that's exactly what happens on your genes is a little person comes and sticks a little flag on mm-hmm. your DNA and is like, oh, we changed something Forever here. changed. Yeah. Ah, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. You with me so far? So something external can essentially change your genetic correct your makeup the way that wow that's crazy isn't it wild that is that's insane just wait till we get into some of the research with all of this i'm so scared i'm so excited to tell (laughs) you about it okay um also it was so hard keeping this under 18 pages of notes right Um, this is not your this was not a dissertation right dr karen maybe in the future Mm -hmm. um when you do your doctoral yeah. But epigenetics is the study of the physical changes that affect how our genes are expressed and thus whether particular proteins are produced. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, the changes in the gene leave a little mark where that gene has been physically altered. And that chemical mark is the epigenome. Okay. So the epigenome? Epigenome. The epigenome can be <laughs> affected by positive experiences, like okay. having a loving and supportive relationship with a caregiver, okay. um, opportunities for higher learning, okay. um, or negative experiences like environmental toxins or stressful life circumstances. Mm-hmm. Okay. Makes so sense. you can have positive changes and you can have negative changes. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. Cool. What environmental factors might influence epigenetics? Mm. I see your face. Probably trauma, right? Trauma, uh, also diet, smoking, drug use, exercise, early stress, and childhood trauma Mm. or any trauma. That'll do it. Specifically childhood trauma because that's when you're you're most vulnerable. Because that's when you're being, um, that's when you're malleable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So what's interesting about this is the connection between the physical self and the mental self. And this goes two ways. So we already know that like poor diet and exercise has some correlation to depression. Like if you're not eating well and you're not moving. Okay. Okay. Right. But like, it's so hard. It's so hard. It is so hard. Especially there's a pandemic. You get into a routine. This is 28 days later most certainly <laughs> in another form so yeah it's we're sucks. living it's out hard. multiple apocalyptic films yeah. at the same time here because we've got the climate change thing going on right. we got zombies yeah and baths are bath salts still a concern uh, i mean probably in certain communities probably maybe myrtle beach <laughs> <laughs> shout out to myrtle shout beach uh, yeah so <laughs> um But what epigenetics tells us is that depression is a chemical reaction in the brain that's misfiring or just not producing enough, like, happy chemicals. Okay. Serotonin, dopamine, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Or if they are producing the happy chemicals, they're not being absorbed appropriately. Okay. Maybe one day we'll get into the science of depression, because I think that that's really interesting, too. Mm -hmm. But Also, like, super light and perfect. Exactly. For a podcast. podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But the way that your genes work to produce these happy chemicals or the absorption of them has fundamentally changed. Okay. Epigenetics is essentially proving that it's not just in your head. Like, Mm. you can be depressed and have a poor diet and poor exercise. Mm Mm-hmm. And those two things don't have to have anything don't in common. Don't necessarily correlate. Exactly. Wow. Because it could be from your past, from right. your genetic. Exactly. That's just, we have no control over anything. No. Uh, the rules are made up and the points don't matter. Oh, my God. Yeah. No. So <laughs> we're going to get very technical here. Okay. And also, for funsies, mm. I have never once looked up how to pronounce anything for this podcast. Okay. So I'm not about to start now. Why would you? <laughs> so Why we're now? just going to stumble through this together. Okay, perfect. Uh, 10 points for Hufflepuff. No, you're Ravenclaw. I'm, a Ravenclaw. I'm so sorry. I mean, how disrespectful. <laughs> Get together, Hufflepuff. I'm, uh, yeah. Well, we're, we're underdeveloped. also kind of the same person. So We're underdeveloped as a house, both of us. That's you know, true. We're just not in the limelight. It's fine. We need our own books. Not bitter. I mean, I it's have whole. Luna Lovegood, so there's that. Oh. And you have Cedric Diggory, but yeah. name one other from either of our houses. I can't rate the second. Mm, that's shameful. Maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> I am not the Harry Potter nerd I claim to be. Back to epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Epigenetics. So to get very technical, one example of an epigenetic change is uh, DNA mm. methylation. The addition of methyl group or chemical gap to the part of the DNA molecule, which prevents certain genes from being expressed. Um, and I will not be taking any questions <laughs> at this time. <laughs> Got I it. just really wanted to put that out there uh-huh. um, for those of you who now might be wagging your fingers and calling this hogwash. Yeah, don't at And to us. you, I would have to say there are four categories of epigenetic modifications. Go look them up with the Google. Not right now. Mm-hmm. Like, do not pause this to go look it up. No. But yeah. mm-hmm. check it out. Um, back to the point. Early childhood trauma, or just trauma in general, is the reason that if you remove a scary traumatic thing, that the body still remembers it even years later. And we're going to talk about this more in a second, but it's kind of like 
if you're standing in the middle of the road mm-hmm. and an 18 wheeler comes at you mm-hmm. over and over and over, that's a traumatic event. Like you're constantly yeah. dodging 18 wheelers. That's right. terrifying. Oh my God. Yeah. And then if you're still standing in the middle of the road, but have removed the 18 wheeler, you still continue to look There's for still it. still the anxiety of whether or when, basically when it's going to show up, right? Exactly. Um, and that metaphor actually comes from a movie called Resilience, um, hmm. which we will tag below in our Instagram post for this week so that you can go and check it out. Um, I think it's kind of hard to find, but they do a lot of trainings on it. Hmm. No, I've never heard of it. Yeah. And I've heard of everything. So you have just, that was a joke. <laughs> let me tell you what is so cool about epigenetics okay. other than it can be temporary or permanent. So oh, okay. at some point, like hmm. if you do enough work so to speak you can reverse the marker you can take the flag off the moon but you've got to go back to that specific spot to take the flag off the moon is this an actual genetic change that can then be reversed or is this psychological well it's an actual genetic change that can either be reversed or fades with time okay so a a permanent one's going to be there until something happens to change it again. Sure. Oh. However, a temporary one. I guess I never time. understood or ever thought of that. I thought we were just born with our genetics, and and then that's and they how, are what and they are. They are what they are, and then then you well, die, and they're the same. And all the studies are now disproving that. That was kind of the theory for everything I've ever heard is like, this is just the way it is and you can't change it. You just got to work with what you got. And epigenetics is like, no, actually your genes change all the time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and how would they know? Because they're not studying all of our genes constantly. Well, there was a, um, a discovery of about like a century's worth of health records from this really small isolated community in Sweden. In Sweden? Sweden. Sweden. <laughs> I love your accents. Thank I just you. really, I need to start. It's a gift. Yeah. <laughs> just so offensive. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but in this super small isolated community, for whatever reason, their health records have been preserved for over a hundred years. So we had this massive collection of data Hmm. and people went and studied and realized that there were years where people in this community didn't have enough to eat, like either due to drought, famine, um, potato famine, potato famine. That was Ireland. Anyway, that's not (laughs) very similar. Very, very similar. In 2002, as I think about the time they were discovered, at least that's when the study found that men in this region who had plenty of access to food between the ages of nine and 12, so still in those Mm -hmm. formative years, went on to have male grandchildren with higher rates of diabetes and heart disease. Hmm. So what that means Hmm. is the bodies of humans in this particular isolated region of Sweden had adapted like their genes had physically changed when they didn't have enough food. Uh So then when they had enough food, their genes changed again. And now they're for several generations, people are developing diabetes because their ancestors had been changed to right to adapt to adapt wow that's fucking crazy was that clear yes yeah yeah. cool so yeah it's a generational genetic development that basically altered future generations right but we can't tie to anything other than circumstances um which some of this reminds me of like darwin's theory of evolution so it's just a theory just a theory of evolution (laughs) that our genes adapt to our environment we totally believe in evolution. We do. That's 
Thank I just you. want to make I appreciate that very clear. It's just, I mean, you can't prove evolution, so well, it's well, still considered a theory. Oh, well, yeah, but you can't prove gravity either. Uh, but you can prove gravity. There's a scientific method to prove gravity. But exists. it's still a theory. Is it? Is it? <laughs> Dr. Karen. So. No? The theory no. of gravity. Yes, it is. It's not a theory. I'm Googling it. Proven. Please, Please hold. It. I mean, we don't have to hold. Keep talking. Okay. So while you're looking up whether or not gravity is a theory <laughs> or has been proven. Okay. So um, it's a multi-generational effect. And they found that the grandchildren of women who were pregnant during this time were more likely to have fat newborns, like little chunky little babies with the, with the, with the rolls the on rolls the arms and the, and the legs, little shabby legs <laughs> with the feet that stick we with the little socks. Have, have baby you, fever? Not, not at all. Have you seen a like a fucking? tiny air jordan or a tiny shoe you're just like little baby chucks yes (laughs) i cannot wait for you to one day have kids i know so that i can buy you cute little baby shoes yeah my kid's gonna be the cutest baby ever yeah ray's gonna make sure that kid's gonna like walk out in chanel and like oh i have no doubt Mm -hmm. gucci belts yeah yeah and the thought is that um like through the normal process of embryos and stripping like their genetic markers, even though they were born to people who had experienced famine, their genetic markers have been stripped of that gene because suddenly they had food again. So that they were being born mm-hmm. like normal to above normal weight okay. in order to adapt to their environment, Oh wow! which is just super cool. That is cool. Okay. But here's the like most wild of all the studies that, I've found that have been done. Okay. So a recent study showed that mice can inherit experiences of fear from their grandfathers. Like, uh, so the grandfathers, according to a research done in 2013 from Emory mm-hmm. University, male mice were trained to associate a, one specific odor with an electric shock, which is okay. horrible. That's fucked up. I know. In 2013, in they 20, were still doing that shit? I mean, they're still doing this shit today. No animal testing. Mm-hmm. Also, it does give us data that's kind of interesting and good for... Yeah, I just... I just I, don't love it. No, there I There has don't. to be another way to do it. I don't like it. Male mice were trained to associate an odor with an electric shock. Wait, do we know why, why just male? I guess to narrow all the different... Uh, Factors? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the male mice started to learn to associate that specific smell with being shocked. So they Ugh. began to have a fear response whenever they smelled it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Which is natural. Yeah. I would too. Surprisingly, they found that the smell also startled the next two generations of mice. Oh, wow. Which means that this behavior was inherited even if, or even though the mice were conceived through in vitro fertilization, mm. um, which rules out social learning theory because they weren't raised right. to observe this behavior. Sure. So it changed part of the gene in the mice for two generations so that Just they experience fear. the same fear. That's so scary. Also, gravity is a theory. It's called Newton's theory of gravity. Okay. I love you so much, sweet angel. I may not always be right, but I always believe what I say. I might very fully. I might not always wait. I'm always there when you call. I'm not always there when you call, but I'm always on time. I don't know what that means. I'm not always there when you call, <laughs> and I'm always on time. I appreciate mm-hmm, that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but what I think is so interesting about this is epigenetics has proven mm-hmm. that. 
you know, you can alter your genes from positive and negative experiences. That's wild to me. Well, and what I think is so cool about this is if we can inherit fear from our ancestors. ancestors. And yeah. that's so interesting because I think we all have relationships with family members, but due to certain circumstances, though can those can only go back yeah. certain right. amount of time, right? So I never knew my grandfather on my dad's side, so I don't know firsthand what I might have right. You know, taken inherited from, him, from him. Inherited, thank you, inherited from him. And yeah, it's crazy. It is and crazy. And people who are adopted, which you work, you know. Yeah, I work in the field of adoption mm-hmm. um, in foster care. So I feel like you miss so much when a parent is deceased or when, you know, you no longer live with them mm-hmm. to, you don't, you miss out on, you miss out on the opportunity to figure out where you get some of these traits and yep. characteristics from grandparents or even great grandparents. Mm-hmm. So, and even also having relationships with your family that aren't very like forthcoming or yeah, oftentimes grandchildren and grandparents have a lot of focus on the grandchild. And I think that we oftentimes forget to dive into older generation stories and right. their history and, and what they've experienced because sometimes well, it's complicated and hard, and, but, and I feel so lucky. My grandfather lived to be 101 and wrote mm-hmm. his memoirs, but in his memoir, he doesn't actually tell anyone how he felt about anything. Mm-hmm. It was just, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. Oh, um, man. I know. And I like, even at the time when I was reading the very first draft, um, I wanted to ask him more. And he was just like, well, I only want to talk about happy things. Mm-hmm. So even at 101 and I was, I'm an adult, mm-hmm. he still didn't want to share, you know, the any traumatic sort of trauma, right. or, hmm. uh, which is just fascinating. Yeah, to me. absolutely. Cause I think that that's how you heal a lot of trauma is talking about it yeah. intergenerationally. Yes. Yeah. And also that, therapy that's why therapy is so important yeah um i've heard a lot of great ads for different therapy i like Like, that it's so accessible now that makes it that's just fantastic honestly i think that's one of the best and maybe most unexpected outcomes of the pandemic Mm -hmm. is it suddenly things that were not accessible to people are now much more accessible Mm -hmm. like i can join a yoga class that's happening in colorado because the yoga teacher is deaf and therefore it's going to be accessible to people with hearing loss yes or therapy therapy Mm -hmm. if you are more comfortable in a language other than English, you can now find a therapist, even if they're not in your same geographic location. Absolutely. And do it online. Like Mm -hmm. that's huge and revolutionary. Absolutely. And research is showing that even though it's not in person, you're still kind of getting most of the same benefits. I think in person is always preferable. Yeah. But not possible. So I think to me, it makes it less scary. Yeah. Because I can access access it from my sweatpants, my favorite gray sweatpants that I've worn for five weeks straight. Well, um, if all your other athleisure is in the wash <laughs> and all you it's have not. is... <laughs> it's not. You just have a favorite. Okay. Um, but you know, I, I do think that the, the computer portion, and I think we're getting a little bit off topic, but to me, it... it I mean, it's all it's relevant. It's just as good. Yeah. Well, not just as good. Not at all. But in a therapeutic or a therapist uh, scenario, I think it's comparable. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, in fact, I started working with a new therapist just after co- about the time I mm-hmm. think that everything really shut down. And I've never met my therapist in person, even though like she lives with in the same city that I do. Mm, um, okay. And her husband taught at the college that my brother went to. Mm. So our paths have definitely crossed before. Right. I've only ever met with her online. And yeah. I still feel like she's great and I've yeah. enjoyed working with her. Absolutely. So, shout out to therapists. Yeah. So going back to the movie Resilience, mm-hmm. kind of the, the topic about the 18 wheelers. Yes. So that film actually came from the idea of building resilience after you've experienced uh, childhood adversity. Okay. So I wasn't planning, when I first started writing this, I wasn't planning on having two topics in one, uh, just because I feel like I wanted to spread them out more. However, after researching epigenetics and getting my PhD, I realized (laughs) that ACEs is actually the other side of this exact same coin, and I can't miss the opportunity to cover both at once. So what is So what is ACEs? Yes. So ACEs is an acronym and it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Okay. And essentially, uh, potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood, for example, experiencing violence, abuse, neglect, witnessing violence in your home or community, losing a family member to death, incarceration or separation, substance abuse, etc., all contributes to like the 10 most common things that a child might mm-hmm. ex- have trauma from. Yeah, sure. So there's 10, there's, there's 10 basically points. 10 aces. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this, the study linked these 10 traumatic events to chronic health problems, mental health problems and substance use in adulthood. Oh, okay. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit more about the study. Yeah. The study was done at Kaiser Permanente from 1995 to 1997 and included 17,000 adults, which okay. in the mid 90s, that's, that's huge. Yeah. So of those, two thirds of the participants answered yes to at least one of the indicators. And I'm going to read those indicators for you. Okay. Do we know anything about like the demographics of um, the. We do. And I'm going to tell you about that in just a second. Oh, okay. Okay. But first, I really want you to just like soak all this in. Okay. I'm okay. Ready. My body's ready. Yeah. So of <clears throat> the 17,000 adults, two thirds of the participants answered yes to at least one of the questions okay. on the ACES, set, or ACES questionnaire. Of those two thirds, 87% answered yes to more than one. So okay. anywhere from two to 10. So with an a score of four or more, the likelihood of chronic pulmonary lung disease increases by 390%. Oh, wow. Depression by 460%. Uh-huh. Okay. And you are 1,220% more likely to have attempted suicide. Oh, my God. Other things that they studied were the relation between these 10 indicators and liver disease later being sexually assaulted or experiencing interpersonal violence or domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Just the list goes on. Mm -hmm. Smoking, um, you know, I'm blanking on the others. But those are like very real physical problems right, right. and mental health problems that they have associated with childhood trauma. So back to your yeah, original question of like, 
Whether, so to me, it's like either, I mean, it, whenever somebody's gathering data for a study like this, they try to make the the people like as diverse as possible, or they usually focus on like one particular right. area, right? So I think most people, when they hear this data, automatically assume that it was done in a community of color or maybe even a food desert um, okay. where mm-hmm. access to healthcare was shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's America. We No one has great healthcare right. at this point, it doesn't Ugh, seem. It's tough, yeah. What's so shocking about this is the 17,000 people who were surveyed were mostly white, middle to upper class, college-educated mm-hmm. individuals with good jobs and great healthcare in San Diego. In San Diego specifically? In San Diego. That's inter- is that because San Diego is a pre- predominantly white area? That's It's because that's where Kaiser Permanente is. Ah, okay. So he was like, let me just cast the net kind of close to home and yeah. see what we get. So that's interesting because that, that kind of takes away the idea that trauma only happens in certain communities. Exactly. Um, prior to this, most research that was done about abuse or neglect had actually... Like the research had been done on poor people of color who happened to live in the inner city. Mm. So mm-hmm. the data made it look like the only place that abuse and neglect happened was with poor communities and poor health. And that was like a POC issue, essentially. Okay. Yeah. Um, and therefore, white wealthy people were immune to these kinds of problems or the kinds of problems affecting people who were poor, thus perpetuating classism and racism. It's interesting because I feel like the, and this could be wrong, but the group of people that they studied is going to have a different sense of trauma, perhaps, depending on their situation. Do you know anything about, like, what were well, what were the questions? Let me read Do the you know? questions to you. Okay, that would yeah. be helpful because to me, it's just like, even going back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's like, okay, so what are we focused? Is this the regular Maslow's or the inverted? Because Right. That can make a huge difference. Great question and great reference to... Thank you. Oh, gosh. Was that our third episode? I think so. Yeah. Wow. I feel like a pro now. Throwback. We were babies Three whole weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I am actually going to just read the questionnaire for you. It's kind of long, but there are only 10 questions. Okay. Just the questions are really wordy. Okay. Um, And we're going to talk about all the issues with this after I finish reading it to you. Okay. Start thinking about maybe some of the potential issues. Okay. Quick disclaimer. This might be very triggering for people who have experienced trauma. There are conversations about abuse, neglect, domestic violence. Okay. Basically, anything that you can think of that was traumatic in childhood. So if you need to fast forward through this part, go for it. I totally understand. Mm -hmm. Also, I'm using the plural you here. However, it might sound like I'm talking to you, the listener specifically. Please don't feel like you have to answer these questions. (laughs) Call your therapist if you need to. Okay, so while you were growing up during your first 18 years of life, number one, did a parent or other adult in the household often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you feel afraid that you might be physically hurt? Hmm. Number two, did a parent or other adult in the household often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you? Or did they hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Number three, did a person or adult at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touched their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have oral, anal, or vaginal intercourse with you? Mm. Do you often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special? 
or that your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other. Number five, did you often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one protect you, or that your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or to take you to the doctor if you needed it? Number six, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Number seven. That seems like a big one. Separated or divorced? Yeah, I mean, that's like 50% of the population at this point. I mean, more than that now, I think. At the time, I don't know the statistics for the 90s, but yeah, that would be like the percentage that you said at least answered one. I would assume the majority would be for that particular one. Except that in upper class um, communities, divorce is a lot less common because Mm -hmm. I guess you sign prenups and there's like money as a factor. It's not just about right falling out of love with somebody. Sure. Whereas in lower to middle class families, we're still focused on love. Yeah. And that being the driving force behind marriage. Yeah. Um, not that upper class people don't marry for love. Y'all don't love each other. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I definitely think that when we're looking at the demographic that was interviewed mm-hmm. and received this survey. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Um, but you're probably right. That was may have been the most most common one number seven were any of your parents or other adult caregivers often pushed grabbed slapped or had something thrown at them or sometimes are often kicked beaten hit with a fist or hit with something hard or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or knife Mm, okay uh number eight did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? And number 10, did a household member ever go to prison? Okay. Pre-18 years old. Um, so let me get back to my notes. Okay. Um, so there are some limitations to this study. And first, it wasn't expansive and didn't take into account like community violence racism, ableism mm-hmm. and disability, queer experiences, uh-huh. yeah. uh, food insecurity in your community, mm-hmm. things like that that we know are traumatic. Mm-hmm. This, I think Kaiser really anticipated that this would be a jumping off point and not the final 10 questions, except that it remains kind of the final 10 questions. Yeah, because 10 seems small in the scheme of things. It seems to focus on the experiences around you as opposed to... Oh, I think I forgot one. Let me find it. Also, for number seven, the language initially said was your mother or stepmother Mm. um, often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at them. In newer iterations of the ACE questionnaire, Mm -hmm. it now says, were any of your parents or adult caregivers? Oh, okay. Well, that's inclusive. That's good. They've changed, you know, at least one thing about it over the years. So to me, it seems this is focused on your surroundings specifically, not necessarily like family related, interpersonal relationship related. Yeah. As opposed to trauma that might be um, from a a friend or... Uh, stranger or even within the media. So this is covering maybe a smaller percentage, maybe? Absolutely. And it's also, you know, it doesn't take into account like uh, historical trauma. Mm -hmm. So, you know, black people have... Systemic racism. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there are a lot of updates that need to happen. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of concerns here. But it was a good jumping off point. And essentially it did prove a connection between your early experiences, and your later health and mental health. So we're going to talk about one of my heroes, 
Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. Okay. She wrote a book called The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. Hmm. So just south of San Diego, where the Kaiser Permanente study was done. San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) Sound like (laughs) Jafar. About 10 years later, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris is a uh, pediatrician and family practitioner who opens up a clinic in the Bayview Hunters Point community in San Francisco. Okay. So same state, but... Mm -hmm. Like, there are some differences between San Francisco and San Diego. Yeah, San Francisco is really... I mean, I don't... I've only been to... I have not been to San Diego. San Francisco is really expensive. It's really gorgeous. That's where we got engaged last year. That's right. And we we were... um, We actually had a conversation with our Lyft driver. This was like pre-COVID, too. This is like right before everything shut down. But she discussed um, the standard of living in in San Francisco and everything being just so expensive. And she said that she knew of somebody who made like, I think, in the 70s a year and still received some type of government assistance because of their situation with their family. And the cost of living in that area. Cost of living. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that doesn't surprise me. And this, the Bayview Hunters Point area is much less affluent than that. Right. Um, Like high crime rates, poverty. Mm -hmm. um, It's also a food desert, I think, meaning that there's just not a lot of access to good, Mm -hmm. healthy foods. Yep. Um, Within a certain mileage right and certain population density Mm -hmm. um this is like one of those places where you expect family dollars and dollar generals to pop up and Mm -hmm. take advantage of people because it's the only grocery store nearby my grandmother grew up in bozier louisiana which is a food desert and all they have is a pizza hut and a dollar store and a gas station there's nowhere to buy fresh she's moved to shreveport hashtag shreveport (laughs) (laughs) but yeah but that's essentially the problem is that when you we're telling people to eat better um, and at the same time not giving them access to better food options right. or affordable food yeah. options. Yeah. So Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris goes in and opens this clinic and immediately she starts seeing kids come in with an ADHD diagnosis. And she says, quote, my patient's ADHD symptoms didn't just come out of the blue. They seem to occur at the highest rates in patients who are struggling with some type of life disruption or trauma. She put together this wasn't a mental disorder, but actually a biological process that disrupted normal functioning. So something triggered the... Yeah. So something flipped the switch. And if we're thinking again about epigenetics... There was a marker that flipped, and now this child is exhibiting ADHD symptoms Mm. that may not have naturally been, they may not have been predisposed to. Wow. Um, So what she did is she um, basically pulled together community supports and resources, provided wraparound services, asked therapists and counselors... As therapists and counselors to come into her office and work with the children and family who were experiencing trauma mm-hmm. to provide um, resiliency factors against ACEs. Okay. So what, one of the things that she comments in her TED Talk is that um, the ACEs study had been done years before and she'd never heard of it until she started digging in deeper trying to figure out what was going on with her clients. Right. And was finally like, why has this been buried we, this is the issue. Like, mm-hmm. this is our health crisis. We have got to fix this. And she's doing just that in the Hunter's Bay, Bayview, Hunter's Point area. Mm-hmm. What people seem to be thinking is that toxic stress, which is trauma, 
impacts Ugh. ACEs, and this is not experienced just as an individual, but could also be transmitted from one generation to the next at the genetic level. So, wow. and that's how ACEs and epigenetics come together mm. with childhood trauma. Wow. Psychology and science and, you know, social work and all the things. Dr. Just Watkins. Right on together. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Watkins. Kittens. I'm saying Watson. What? That's weird. <laughs> uh, so I will now give back my PhD okay. title. I'll hold it. At least it. for the time being. Thank yeah. you. You might, you know, it might be time that you need it. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. So what do you have for us today? Are you ready to take a journey with me? Hang on. Let me prepare myself. Okay. Please do. Okay. Uh, prepare your body. Today, we are going to be talking about... A very historical event that was then created timelessly in cinematic form. Okay. Okay. We are going to be talking about the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. I am so excited. I have never seen the Titanic the whole way through. Well, because it's like 5,000. Well, just... The boat sinks. Right. Let me just spoil so I've gotten that for to that you. point in the movie. Like I've seen the beginning and mm-hmm. I've seen the end. So now I never actually have to see the whole thing because you're going to give me. I'm going to give you the inside scoop. The, the scoop. This does not cover any nudie scenes by the specifically. Like, paint me like your French girls. Right. Paint me. Yeah. Is that what she's? Yeah. That's exactly. Is that what, what she, she says? I paint don't know. me like a f- your French model. Yeah. Something, Something like. <laughs> I know the quote. I didn't actually know it was from that movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. It totally um, is. I do know the My Heart Will Go On song. Yeah. This is sponsored by Celine Dion, which was like one of the five CDs my family owned was a Celine Dion CD. Mine too. Growing up. Yeah. So, all right, my dear. So on Mar- in March 1909, work started on the Titanic ship and it continued for almost two years. So it took two years to build the actual oh, ship. Oh, wow. On May 31st, 1911, Titanic's hull, or basically the body of the ship, the part mm-hmm. that goes into the water, right, um, was set into the water. So they had this big, huge ceremony about the Titanic is finally going to be submerged in water. They broke a champagne on... Oh, they do that before it, she sails, right? Right. So okay. she's not she's not ready. She's just in the water. She's getting ready. Yeah. <laughs> um, so more than like a hundred thousand people came out to even see this portion, like of the um, the launching of the boat into the water. So it was already going to be like a huge deal even before it was even done. Wow. Okay. So people it's were, sat, like sending telegrams to their besties. Yeah. You could beep, be beep, there. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> They're like, get your shit together. We're having a girls' week. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're gonna go and we're gonna see America. So it sat in the water after being launched for another full year, while the interior was being decorated and the final touches were being kind of put on the ship. Mm-hmm. So HGTV had a long time to kind of get it ready. <laughs> so this is where they iceberg proofed it and right unshellacked and that's right. So um, they claimed that the ship's design was state-of-the-art at the time, okay? Um, But that kind of, there's a lot of theories about having said that, it kind of was doomed from the start. I mean, it's why you don't get someone's name tattooed on you, ever. Like, your relationship will be doomed from that point on. That's true. Not a lover, anyway. 
The ship had a double lined hull. So the bottom portion of the ship was basically double lined. It also had 15 quote unquote watertight compartments that had, um, that were throughout the bottom of the ship. Okay. Go ahead and call that fake news. Right. False advertising. Thank you, Donald. Yes. So, um, these seemed to be discredited pretty early on Mm -hmm. because the way that they were designed was the walls of these 15 compartments were technically watertight. However, the water tightness only went up a certain amount of feet. So if there was water coming consistently from one to the other, it kind of just messed up the whole design. Then you've just kind of put in um like a river rock like the water will eventually just exactly kind of up and over and yeah boom. exactly you made a nice little white water experience yes for someone who brought their kayak but it was the waterproof walls or partitions that made the magazine the shipbuilder it called it practically unsinkable so that's what kind of coined the term that the unsinkable ship, ship was going to yeah. be unsinkable. And the ship, we'll get into this later, but the ship had sister ships that were also claimed to be unsinkable Is as well. Is one of them like the Britannia? The Nina, the Pinta, the, the Santa, Santa Maria. Maria. That's correct. We'll get to it. Okay. Okay. Because I think one of our favorite authors wrote a book about one of them. I don't Did know. Off the top of my head. So okay, that's fine. Remind me later. Yep. Um... Additionally, there was another fatal flaw was the fact that the ship did not have enough lifeboats on board. Okay. I remember. Okay. I do remember that part of the movie. Yeah. So it had 16 lifeboats um, and four collapsible lifeboats, which were kind of like a new thing um, that could fit a little bit more snugly in, in the ship, not take as much space. They were like the tubing material. Like if you go tubing now. Um, I don't actually, I didn't come across in my research what the material was as I'm opposed a, to the, yeah. but we can speculate wildly. I think that they that's were exactly what we should do. Yeah. Sure. Um, so all of these together could have accommodated like 1200 people. Okay. okay. And problem is wait, that the ship was carrying about 2,500 passengers, so, 2,435 to be exact. Okay. So less than half. Which means that even if the boats were loaded at full capacity, it would have only saved one third of the people on board. The crazy part of this is that the number of lifeboats exceeded the requirements at the time. So they even had more (gasps) lifeboats that were like necessary to have by law. Now that I didn't know. That's super fucked up, right? Oh my God. Yeah. I don't think they, did they mention that in the movie? Probably not. No, none of this is in the movie. They're focused on Leonardo. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This next excerpt is from a history.com article. Okay. Quote, the Titanic created a quite a stir when it departed from its maiden voyage from Southampton, England on April 10th, 1912. After, after stops in Cherbourg, France and Queenstown, Ireland, the ship set sail for New York. End quote. So many of those aboard were wealthy and really important people. This was like the biggest news at the time. Okay. I mean, it costs... Five hundred thousand even now. Yeah. Yes. To get a ticket and then it cost a lot of yes. So rich people um, you know, didn't want to miss out on taking a spin on the, you know, unsinkable vessel. And the company that uh 
created the ship was called White Star. And its managing director, J. Bruce Eismay, and his companion, quote unquote, which I was like, mm, gay, gay. <laughs> Thomas Andrews, uh, were on the ship. And he was the ship's builder. Um, and they were there. So J.P. Morgan. Hey, I know him. Yes. So his International Marine Shipping Trust controlled the White Star Line. So that whole company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was he planned to be present on the ship. However, he canceled last minute due to business matters. Good decision, sir. Yes. So he got man. Lucky. That's fortuitous. The wealthiest person, the wealthiest passenger. His name was John Jacob Astor the Fourth. Is that who we get John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt from? That's what we're going to call him, at least. <laughs> so he was heir to the Astor family fortune. So not only to be the richest person on board, but it was said that he was the richest person in the world at the time. Wow. He had the equivalent of $87 million at Which the time. Which is nothing anymore. It's the anymore. richest people but in like the world. But back in blah, 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 this was a lot. Uh, are we in 1912 We are. We are. Is this the start of 1912? It is. <laughs> is it? Yeah. The first episode of Dalton Abbey. Oh my God, you would love it. Um, but people are answering a telegram and it's the Titanic has just sunk. Yeah. So that's episode one. Beep, beep, beep. Back yep. to the telegram. Okay. Um, so John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith had been in the spotlight for a while because he married an 18 year old woman. Named Madeline, uh, who was 29 years younger than him. This happened, of course, after he divorced his first wife. Naturally. Yes. So the owner of Macy's, Uh Isidore Strauss, and his wife, Ida, uh, were there. That's who it was, yeah. (laughs) And the Margaret Molly Brown, who earned her name as the unsinkable Molly Brown, um, she was coined that by helping people get into their lifeboats and keeping everybody calm. So we'll come back to her, but she was kind of a historical figure that came out of this. So the famous population that was on board normally had purchased first class ticket. So at this point we have three classes. We have first class, second class, third class tickets. Okay. Obviously we know that the first class tickets were going to be the most important people. That's where John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith is from, right? That was correct. Is it Smith or Schmidt? You said Smith a second ago, but I always thought it was Schmidt. Oh, so I was just copying what you said. Me. Don't listen to me. So the the people who were employed on the ship were in uh, the second class. So that's important. Really? To I thought the people who were employed on the ship would be like third class. So or third, lower. Well, there wasn't a lower. Third class is like you're sharing a room. It's like a hostel kind of situation. You're renting okay. a bed at that point. And what so, class was Leo in? Leo was in third, I believe. That would make sense. I don't remember. I, but that also had two VHS tapes. <laughs> okay, so the Titanic's departure from Southampton on April 10th did not go off without a hitch. There was a small coach fire that uh, was discovered in one of the bunkers, uh, and apparently this wasn't unco- uh, uncommon at the time. They're like, oh, there's a fire, and they're like, it's fine. <laughs> So That's after, comforting to I hear. I know, right? So after assessing the situation, the captain decided that the fire could be maintained on the sea. And they carried on. They just left. Well, I mean, water does cancel out fire mm-hmm. in the game of okay, rock, paper, scissors. Um, also, the ship, when it was leaving, it was literally 
within four feet of another ship. So it very almost got in an accident before it had even left. So the, the vibes are not good at this point. Okay. Yeah. I'm not feeling this. According to a theory, um, by a few experts, that fire we were just talking about became basically uncontrollable. And that could have been one of the reasons for the sinking of the ship besides the iceberg. I, I felt like the iceberg may have had more to do with it, though, mm, if you're yeah. already weakened by a carriage fire. Well, and the fire would have, what they're saying is that the fire would have caused them to be basically like full steaming ahead, which ha- which would have made them less likely to have seen an iceberg. That makes sense. So I'm trying to be very present with you. I'm also already thinking about intersectionality, and uh-huh. I know that we're going to come back to it. But I feel like it's very similar to looking at the pandemic and being like, there's an iceberg uh-huh. and then saying, but there's also this it. other thing <laughs> yeah. that we, oh, yeah. anyways, we'll come back to that at some point. I just wanted to go So you're saying the pandemic versus like mental health, the pandemic versus mental health or looking at trauma and being like the, the trauma is the carriage fire Mm -hmm. and we're so busy talking about everything else that's happening in the world and how we need to just adjust and like correct our course Mm -hmm. when people are still focused on the carriage fire which is also you know debilitating right absolutely so okay but we'll come back to our intersectionality later we will i am not done On April 14th, after four days of sailing, the Titanic received six warnings of icebergs during that time before they finally made contact with one. Okay, so about 11.30 p.m. on this day, April 14th, 1912, a lookout saw an iceberg. So the engines were moved into reverse and the ship was turned. Okay. Okay. So although the ship did not make direct head-on contact with the iceberg, the ship grazed along the side of the iceberg. Because they didn't hit it head on, it took the staff members a while to figure out that something was really wrong. So it basically had carved out a gash in the side of the ship. Okay. Oh, how terrifying. If they had known sooner that the iceberg had uh, slashed a 300-foot hole in the ship, they might have been able to do something uh, as far as I mean, alerting their teams. Yeah, but really, what do you do with limited lifeboats in a 300-foot-long well, gash? That is, that is true. By the time the captain saw the damage, um, along with Harland and Wolf, Wolf Thomas Andrews, who was the creator of the ship and the architect, uh, five compartments out of the 16 that we talked about were full of water. Yeah. So at this point, Andrews believed that the ship would sink in an hour and a half. And at this point, they called the operator to, to call for help and order lifeboats to be unloaded. I mean, mm-hmm. like ideally, you would have a few other boats nearby who could send additional lifeboats well they're in the middle of the atlantic at this point so yeah and boats didn't move very quickly back then it's just it's just scary it's just shitty circumstances so about 30 minutes after the accident happened there was a really chaotic scene happening on the on the on the deck um people everyone was like attempting to evacuate yeah and it was super disorganized because it, they didn't no think this actually, was actually going to happen. Exactly. It's the unsinkable ship. So the lifeboats were designed to hold 65 people. Those are big lifeboats. Yeah. They were, I mean, they were actual boats. Okay. They, I mean, I know we want to say that they were inner tubes, but they were actual boats. <laughs> At least the majority of them were. The majority there were still of them. some like inner tubes. Potentially inner tubes. 
not we don't know not actual inner tubes right yes but inflatable so they were supposed to hold 65 the first left with only 28 on board that's how chaotic was yeah so nobody really knew the proper you know protocol exactly so tragically the situation happened kind of over and over again almost every lifeboat left um underfilled and some with only a few passengers so at the time, the, quote, law of the sea required women and children to board first. And, um, and then only after all of the women and children were put on the lifeboats that men could then right. access the lifeboats. Right. There were a couple of accommodations for elderly or disabled people. Men. Really men. Um, but after an hour and a half passed and the ship had not sunk, um, they kind of realized that they had a little bit more time. So it ended up holding off for about three hours, um, which was like three hours of panic, right? Yeah. Not ideal at all. So men kissed their wives and children goodbye, and family said goodbye to their pets, and families were split up among the chaos. There were pets on board, I know. So this next excerpt is from that history.com article. Yeah. Okay. So, quote, Thomas Andrews, the Titanic's chief designer, was last seen in the first class smoking room, staring blankly at a painting of a ship on the wall. Well, let me just tell you, if my ship was going down, that's exactly where I would be. Right. Contemplating my life choices. (laughs) Exactly. He's like, let me have a cigar. Astor deposited his wife, Madeline, into a lifeboat. And remarking that she was pregnant, asked if he could accompany her, refused entry. He managed to kiss her goodbye just before the boat was lowered away. Is that not? It's just fucking terrible. Isidore Strauss was offered a seat based on his age. He refused any special accommodation. And him and his wife, Ida, she didn't want to leave her husband. So the couple retired to their cabin and died together in their cabin. I mean, you got to go sometime. I know. Why not go in the together yeah <laughs> i, know. I um, mean i just that's a titan that's a that's an iconic scene in the movie yeah so rose lang is it a door or just a piece of wood i don't really know like i said i've never actually seen this movie the whole way through but um i love love all of the memes about all the ways that jack could have fit oh on he this totally piece of wood. could have fit on the door <laughs> absolutely and i mean sure buoyancy may have been an issue but they could have at least tried a little harder like she was willing to die for this man mm-hmm. she did not she yeah. let go but i know it's tough it's tough. Molly Brown, however, helped guide people into the lifeboats, and she was the badass bitch. She was like, are you good? She was the one organizing everything, okay? And I she stayed until say, the very last lifeboat, and then she got on board. I just have to say, I would like to believe that that would be me. <laughs> I would love to Who, think. Honestly, I mean, I'm this the is hero, like the worst case scenario. Like, main character of this story, mm-hmm. saving people. I'd be terrified. I would be sitting there smoking a cigar, looking at a picture of a boat, thinking, well, (laughs) exactly. Let me make better choices in my next life. Let's unpack this. (laughs) (laughs) At 2.20 a.m. on April 15th, 1912, the ship finally submerged below the water. In the end, 706 people survived the Titanic sinking. That's so much less than I thought. I thought you were about to say 706 people died. No. No. This story does not have a happy ending. It, it does I not. mean, that was the ending, I assume. Well, I, I mean, you more. may have more, but... Yeah, but, you know, it, it was sad. 
Of course, it's assumed that the ship sank because of, like, the hole in the ship. Um, however, other theories have emerged over time. One such theory is that the ship's steel plates, basically that the hull was made out of, um, could not withstand the cold water in the Atlantic. This would have caused the plates to shift and cause and, a leak once the oh, ship... Oh, or maybe yeah. even buckle? That exactly. would make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but regardless of why it happened and the world was pretty much in shock and because of the times like communication was really off right nobody really had the full story so there was a lot of misinformation kind of floating around well and i think because of that people probably um hyperbolically were telling this story like they were exaggerating Uh, everything one thousand percent and it's also like just so theatrical it's yeah an unsinkable the, ship exactly sinking and only you know a percentage of the people surviving yeah and i know this was 1912 was this like april of 1912 mm-hmm. so i'm wondering if when april fool's day became a thing because this would have made an amazing april Stop. fool's joke <laughs> this was april 15th <laughs> Well, news traveled slowly back then. It, it, oh, it took a whole year for them to get <laughs> But yeah. Um, so there was a lot of misinformation, including where the ship had actually sunk. I mean, that makes sense. Like, people who survived were not... I mean, you're in the open ocean. You can't be like, there! Because, like, it all becomes It's right convoluted. next to that iceberg. Mm-hmm. There were multiple icebergs. Yeah. Um, it took 73 years to find the wreckage of the Titanic. That's a long time. 73 years. So 1912 plus 73. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you do that math. Is 85. Yes. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit of fun fact. Darunis. Yes. So a woman named Violet Jessop was a British nurse who worked on the ship. She's either the most lucky or most unlucky person. And I will let you be the deciding factor. Okay. So she was working as a nurse on the ship. She was ordered up from the deck uh, once the iceberg was hit. Okay. Um, she didn't make it onto a lifeboat. So she was one of those people on the water. But after eight hours, she was one of the lucky ones who was survived by the rescue boat that showed up. Oh, wow. So there was a rescue ship that showed up, but the majority of people had passed away at that point. So she is Rose in the Potentially. Movie. Violet, Rose, could be i think but she was I'm a nurse say yes rose was like a she was a ne'er-do-well yeah like she was classer. like a yeah a trust fund baby yeah yeah um but four years later um violet was on board the britannic which was the titanic sister ship that boat that boat also sank and it was uh it sank because it was either hit by a missile or it ran into a landmine they're still not sure but there was some type of explosion Oh, honey, just stay off boats. I know. The boat sank like, within an hour. If you survived hour. the Titanic, you just stay off boats you for the rest of boats. your life. Also, at least two generations are going to be terrified of boats. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's why you're afraid of fish is because you're related to this lady. And I'm not Jonah. even done. Yeah. I'm okay, not even done. Continue. So then this bitch gets on the RMS Olympic. She survived that one too? Yes. I'm going with unlucky or... (laughs) um, So the RMS Olympic is the third sister ship of the Titanic. Okay. Stay off sister ships of the Titanic. Okay. This one didn't sink, but it was involved in an accident when it collided with a British warship. (laughs) (laughs) And while it didn't sink, 
um, she was on it. And like I said, she's either very lucky or very unlucky. Um, I don't think she really seems to be understanding. Yeah, she's she's not um, listening to the the universe. I mean, but how else do you get places like this? It's like getting on Just an airplane. What's your other? No, <laughs> she can't. <laughs> she's, she got <laughs> she's got to go. She's got to maybe plot twist. She's mm-hmm. the reason they all sank. Mm-hmm. Or except for the one, except for the one that didn't sink. Yeah, but uh, the first two, I mean, she was there. They both sank. I think she's the yeah. common denominator. No, you're right. It's her fault. Um, so just following up. Uh, just kind of tying it all together. Um, the reason that these all these ships all sink is because of Violet uh, Jessup. And that is my story of the Titanic. And Violet Jessup. And Violet Jessup. <laughs> um, How do these intersect? I feel like I jumped the gun with intersection this time and created a fun little metaphor. Um, I love good metaphor. We also have, you know... We also have generational trauma. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Like, can every, you imagine being one of the people who lived and then has children and grandchildren? It's like, whatever you do, do not get on a boat. Mm-mm. Except for Violet Jessup, who is like, let me get on every boat. Right. I invented boats. <laughs> I invented post its. She's a boss ass bitch. For, for sure. sure. Five sure. Yeah. Um, so is Molly Brown. Mm-hmm. Like hats off to Molly Brown. Yeah. She reminds me of the woman that started the, uh, Red Cross, which I don't remember her name off the top of my head. I don't either. But completely unqualified, but also like, I'll help. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, even if we're going to continue drawing comparisons between our two stories, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who... Mm-hmm just does whatever she can to help the community that she's in. Yeah. Um, I think that that That's might, point. may not be the best no, I connection, like that, but when we're looking at people who... In times of crisis. In times of crisis, function well and are thinking creatively about solutions, mm-hmm. they both win gold stars. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I feel like... What intersections do you see? I, I think sometimes I drive the intersection. No, I, I, I prefer that. I agree with you about the trauma. I think th- this is literally one of the most traumatic experiences that somebody can imagine yeah. about the world around you uh, falling apart and ultimate survival. It's yeah. the fight or flight thing. Um, what's interesting about this is that I think people might argue that trauma in... Um, certain circumstances is you can flee from it you can get away from it yeah so if you are in an uh in a relationship people are always like why don't you just leave which of course we know is not the right circumstance uh or not the right you know thing to say obviously yeah and it's not always possible no it's for a multitude of reasons especially with children also and financial reasons there's so many reasons and psychological stuff that's going on right this is the physical version of that where you are physically unable to leave um because there's only 16 lifeboats and do you fit into that category so um i did read a statistic that said if you were in first class you were 44 percent more likely to survive and I feel like the same is true in our society. Mm-hmm. Like, if you are in first class and the upper class, mm-hmm. you're more likely to go through life 
unscathed mm-hmm. or less scathed mm-hmm. than you know people living in communities that don't have access to mental health or um, health care or food or yeah which is so interesting because your study reflected the majority of, of like middle class of middle class yeah, yeah. so that's why i am under the impression speculating wildly that the majority of those would be from divorce um yeah. obviously for don't know for sure for like the two-thirds who said at least one at least one yeah yeah and then whatever percent i think it was like 87 percent said two or more mm-hmm. which would leave us with 13 percent who said yes to at least one mm-hmm. or and to only one yeah but you know we we don't know we don't know for sure but right. obviously we know that class is a factor in a lot of things so but i think that one of the things that's really interesting about this is and maybe even why the titanic is such a great metaphor for aces and trauma and epigenetics is I had I had no idea about the carriage fire and also that there may have been an issue with the metal buckling and that could have contributed to why um, it's a theory the ship failed but the so people could look at this from the outside and say oh just stay away from icebergs mm-hmm. and that's great but the ship could have burned from the inside or it could have buckled regardless yeah. or it reminds me of the Challenger yeah it reminds me about being. Uh, unprepared and more concerned about what other people are thinking about status and about going ahead and launching it. Yeah. Because so much money was invested in it and, Mm -hmm. uh, that class factor, you know, about that being so important to them. No, I completely agree. Um, and in some cases, maybe they were both preventable. Um, but we were so concerned with, external factors that we weren't concerned with what Mm -hmm. was going on internally, which Mm -hmm. is basically, I think what happens to kids and families is Mm -hmm. we're more concerned with, well, you know, why didn't you eat better? Because now you have heart disease Mm -hmm. when really eating better is just one aspect of the things that may have gone wrong. They may have also experienced other forms of trauma. Yeah, That is so crazy to me even still. Yeah. So all right, I think that is it for this week. Great job, my friend. Good job to you too. I loved learning about the Titanic and feel Thank so you. good about about all the people that died. I was gonna say about <laughs> having never actually watched the entire movie. <laughs> it's a good one. You should watch it. Uh, or at least listen to the soundtrack more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook or find us on the web at podcast without an audience.com. Shoot us an email at pod without an odd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.